this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. I've always said that my purpose in life would be to engage in activities that will truly benefit others and communities and to make a difference. Hello there again, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to November 2021. We are trucking along with our 19th episode for our first season of the podcast. And today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Barnett. Dr. Barnett is an associate professor and the program director for the Duke University School of Medicine PA program. Yes, I said Duke. I know, I know. You are saying, why did it take so long to get the first program in PA history on the podcast? Well, better late than never. So if you are new to the PA profession, Duke is where it all started under the leadership of Dr. Eugene Stead. The program began in 1965 and has been a national leader ever since. They were the first and they continue to be ranked at the top of the U.S. News and World Report, most likely due to their impressive list of faculty and their continued demonstration of leadership through teaching, service, and scholarship for the profession. Today we talk about Duke and about Dr. Barnett's unique path to becoming a PA, as well as her unique roles as a PA working with the D.C. Coroner's Office. We also talk about her lifelong work on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we focus on the Duke PA program. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a pleasure to have you here and and so excited to get Duke University represented in the podcast. It is the mecca for us as a profession and how appropriate that we're interviewing today in the middle of PA week, which I think is really apropos. So I appreciate you taking the time. Can we start with talking about your path to becoming a PA first? Sure. And first of all, thank you, Kevin, for this work that you're doing and uh, inviting me to this podcast. It's, it's, it's truly an honor uh, to be here and truly an honor to be here as a, the program director at the Phenomenal Duke University of PA program. So, yeah, my path into PA um, education several years ago, um, I was actually working in psychiatry with a psychiatrist. And he said to me, I think you should consider going to medical school or to a PA program. And I said, what's a PA? And so he explained to me and he had mentioned that there was a um, gentleman in the ER who had went to GW's PA program, which is what the, the psychiatrist was a GW medical school grad. And so the, the person he referred to, and I'll, I'll just call him John for right now. I, I, I thought John was one of the ER docs. And so I ended up uh, reaching out to George Washington University, and I was very impressed by how much time they spent with me on the phone because there was no internet then, you know, back then, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, I think with Lisa Alexander, and she sent me a packet of information, and I applied, and I guess, shall we say, the rest is history from at least how I got to that point, yeah. That's wonderful, and, and you, as I recall, you are also a National Health Service Corps Scholar, so did you apply for that scholarship right before you started at GW? Yes. I come from a very rural, underserved town with, even to this day, still only about 1,300 uh, population there, good old Tracy's Land in Maryland. My parents still live there, and I'm still pretty much there uh, regularly. Uh, I think I was actually the first to attend, definitely the first to graduate from college in my entire family. No cousins, uncles, I mean, no one. And so GW then was tremendously expensive, and it's even more so now, was one of the most expensive institutions in the United States at the time. And so, yes, I heard about the National Service Corps, and I think actually Lisa Alexander told me about that program, and so I I applied. And so I went in as a a National Health Scholar, and I I came out and took commission in the Public Health Service and uh, served in the uh, BOP for a little bit and then ended up at Johns Hopkins. At the time, they were having uh, the worst syphilis epidemic comparable to underdeveloped countries um, back in the 90s, this is like 96, 96, 97, okay. um, where I was seeing five, six, seven uh, patients a day actually doing dark field microscopy, looking for the spirochete under it, you know, with the patients and sure. a lot. So yes, yeah, so I ended up filling out my national health service for time, you know, there at the you know, at the, at the health department, basically, as a Johns Hopkins uh, employee. And, and the Bureau of Prisons time, how much time did you spend working with the, the prison system? That was about six months with the prison system. Um, and um, in that role, actually, 
I ended up going to uh, the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996 and spent the entire, I guess we were there, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks. I can't even remember now how long we were there. Um, but that, I can definitely say that goes down as one of the highlights of my early career. And I didn't realize it was going to be a highlight at that time. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I was six months there and trained down at Glencoe, Georgia, with many of the federal law enforcement agency, the Border Patrol, DEA, I can't remember all of, you know, all of us we were out there working and, you know, you know, training together. And I was doing stuff that I never, ever thought that I would, you know, would do. I, as the healthcare providers, they allowed us to opt out of firearm training because our, you know, goal is to heal and not to shoot and harm. But I chose to, to try it out. So I had to get certified on a, a double barrel shotgun, M16 to nine millimeter. And I did it <laughs> top of the class. I just want you to know that, Kevin. I came out the top of the class. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I've not touched a, touched a gun since then, but I, you know, I stepped up and made it known that, hey, hey, give me the opportunity and I'll, you know, I'll do well. <laughs> yeah. You were, so you did your time for the NHSC at both the Bureau of Prisons and then at Johns Hopkins. That's when awesome. you left there, what did you decide to do for your practice? Yeah, I am. Um, and I love my time at Johns Hopkins. I actually stayed longer than even what my dollar service required me to. And so an opportunity came. So at the time, uh, Baltimore was about an hour commute for me each day. And so an opportunity came for me to uh, be one of the first PAs in D.C. to be considered a medical legal investigator to investigate the deaths in D.C. I'm working with out of the medical examiner's office. They had a, a crew at the time. The, it almost felt like the much of the primary crew of the medical examiner's office from New York basically left and came down to D.C. And D.C. had never had PAs, but the medical examiner in New York had PAs, brought the one PA there with him. And then myself and another PA were the first hired, you know, to do this work, which was probably like nothing I've ever experienced before in my life and never thought that I would be doing that kind of work, you know, as a, as a PA, it was, you know, for me, underserved populations of communities, it was about going back, treating and providing care. And I never thought that I would be working more so with, you know, people who were not living, you know, in this, in this role, but the amount of medicine that I learned and how things work, whether it's, you know, getting drug approvals that, you know, with stuff that we ended up um, investigating was absolutely amazing. And so, you know, for the audience that may, that may or may not know, you know, cases go to the medical examiner's office. Anything that's not considered a natural death in most jurisdictions have to be examined through the medical examiner's office autopsy. So any and all homicides, suicides, accidents, if someone's in the middle of surgery in a hospital and, you know, something goes awry and they all of those will go to the medical examiner's office. So, again, this is in D.C., a major city. So you can imagine the number of calls and stuff that we got from accidents and suicides and drug overdose. I mean, just so many. And then to do some of those autopsies, you know, even, the, you know, some of the ones that were like not sure and ended up being a heart attack. But, you know, a 37-year-old found dead, you know, that's something that you have to do an autopsy on to find out what's the reason. And then to, to physically see that heart attack, to physically see those vessels, to physically, you know, to see that clog. Um, same thing with some of the, the natural uh, deaths and, and, and even some of the accidents. And, and you can kind of like see how things happen. And it really took me back to learning so much of the physiology and the pathology I mean, when you can really see it, that's one. And then to understand, you know, things like, uh, you know, one one of the things I still really recall was a, a, a case that I investigated is a, basically a husband who had started a, a medication the day before. And in the middle of the night, uh, his wife heard a thump and he basically was angioedema from, you know, from the medication Sure, sure. We had to do that work to, to, to connect it back to the medication. But then uh, from the medical examiner's office to be able to get with the drug companies and all of that, to get black label boxes on, uh, on some of these, say, you know, hey, in this jurisdiction, we are finding a link between 
angioedema and sudden death and this particular medication and to be involved in some of that work and understanding that. The same thing with toys, you know, bath chairs and bathtubs that turn over and unfortunately, you know, you know, causing deaths children and doing some of those and being able to link this particular toy or this particular thing to the death and to investigate that. So that for me was how I could say, okay, this is where the public health comes in for me. This is how I can still continue to contribute as a PA provider, but in a different way to prevent death. So, so that was, it was a very interesting, but it was one of the busiest times of my life. <laughs> I mean, it, that is fascinating. I have to believe that that has you really placed an indelible mark on your brain in terms of how you teach as a PA educator all these years too. Yeah, it, and how I teach, how I think about things, how I look at students, patient care, you know, when going to, you know, right after that, and I went back into seeing patients again. And when I was writing the prescription of the medication that I just investigated like six months ago, you know, to say, uh, I, I know it's, a, you know, a small chance, but the fact that this is what I saw now has a little bit of a label on it that say may cause, it, it really had me thinking, but it, allowed me to really provide that patient with education and me getting that really good history mm-hmm. from that patient um, whenever, you know, when it was related to, you know, have you ever had this medication before? You know, would, would I be giving this to you as a first time medication, which again, you know, increases my thoughts about, you know, about it, but it really gave me a, a more intentional sense of things that cause death that maybe even though I knew it, I didn't think about, I thought about it in a different way. So like anytime I saw, you know, one of my family members or kids with like a toy, I was like, what, what toy is that? Let me see what that is. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, they shouldn't have this. This causes choking. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you have a different set of lenses that you're looking at the world through from that experience. Absolutely. We did so many deaths that um, in cars in the summer with someone forgetting all about or, or leaving a, a, a pet, a child, um, you know, in a car in the hot summer. And, and just that, I, I remember becoming that more cognizant when I was uh, seeing patients with children saying, please, please, you know, make sure before you leave your car or don't assume that five minutes in a, in a car that your dog or, or child is going to be okay. Like, don't make, don't even think about that, <laughs> you know, so just that kind of, edu- you know, just that kind of education and same thing, you know, we had lots around, you know, guns and accidental shootings and a lot of that kind of stuff too. So it gave me a, a different perspective of one, the preciousness of life, but two, some of the things that increase mortality that we really can have a better control on and, and some of the, the preventive care and patient education instruction that we can use to, you know, to support that. A few years ago, there was pushback against the medical community for educating and, and asking questions about guns in the home and things like that. Uh, people felt it was not our role as healthcare providers to be exploring those things. But from your perspective, it sounds like you've got real world experience where that really is valuable to help people understand how how likely it is that these accidents can happen and, and you've lived it, you've seen it. Oh yeah, absolutely. So so tell us about your transition to education because at, at one point in time in your career, you, you ended up in PA education. You actually are the founding program director for the Eastern Shores PA program at that historic black college. And, and so how did that kind of get into that and, and ultimately lead you down to Duke? Right. So um, I, after the medical examiner's role, I was just burned. I don't want to say burned out. That's not a bad, that's not a good way, but it was an exhausting role because it was two of us, two PAs. And when you think of all the deaths that happened in DC, it was, it was exhausting. I was working 24 hours a day, taking three and four pagers and just never got any sleep, you know, just never got any sleep. So I needed a break, took a break. And I got a call from Brenda Jasper, maybe three or four months later. And she was starting. So she was actually their founding program director. I was the academic director. And she was wanting to start a PA program down University of Maryland, Eastern Shore, and had heard that I might be interested. 
And so long story short, I, I initially wasn't interested. I was very content doing what I was doing, but she, she pulled at my, my heartstrings like, Jackie, this is you. It's a rural town. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a poor community. We need PAs. We need to access health care to increase access health care. They need to know about this profession. And so I said, OK, I'll come to really help you get the program started and get the first class you know, going. And, uh, and so that's pretty much how I ended there. And I can tell you that is probably another big area of my career that I am the most proud of the work that we had to do to get that program up and running. Uh, some of the friends that I made are still my best friends, uh, you know, down there at that institution uh, today. And just the potential impact of, of that program in, you know, in that uh, community. I mean, many in that community have never been out of that community. And when you think about the health disparities, I, I don't think there's a, a, a place greater in, in Maryland than the health disparities on the Eastern shore in Maryland. When we were seeing death rates in children, I mean, oh, just, just phenomenal rates and, and things like breast cancer and colon cancer and just some of those things, you know, just, just the, you know, again, the infant, infant mortality was just, I mean, huge. I can't even remember the number now, but it was like 10 times anywhere else in the state. It was really significant. So the social determinants of health were kind of right there in front of you, live for you to experience and, and try to impact. Oh, yeah, it was very much. And that, that for me was the draw. It was really about, okay, you know, I've always said that my purpose in life would be to engage in activities that will truly benefit others and communities and to make a difference. And so that was, you know, the reason, you know, there. And again, my initial uh, goal, because I, my house is in another two and a half hours away, but I really wanted to go and help out and be a part and get the program situated but knew that it would really just to be in that role to get them situated. And then I would continue to help out. I would go in and, you know, teach or help out with admissions. And then um, I received a call from Jeff Heinrich, uh, who's a, a program director at the time at GW, and who basically said, I understand that you're going to be, after a year or so, you're going to be coming back from the university. You know, Mr. Shaw, we'd love to have you. We would love you to come back to your alma mater. We could use your skills as it relates to clinical stuff. And initially I was like, oh, I don't think so uh, because my fiance is currently on faculty there. And I don't know if I want to <laughs> work at the same place, you know, with him. Yeah. Uh, so it was sort of like a, a big joke for a while. And, and so that's basically how I ended up. I said, so I'll come, I'll stay for six months to help you all out with the clinical. I'll get some sites for you, you know, maybe put some processes in place for the, for the clinical year. But, you know, six months, and I think that should really help, you know, that should really help the program. He's like, yes, that would help the program a lot. I said, because I don't want to be there, you know, full time with my fiance there. So needless to say, I was there for 15 years, full time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you two are one of the PA power couples in, in our profession. So that, that all worked out pretty well, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we would laugh, all, you know, laugh all the time. We've had tons and tons of jokes. But uh, <laughs> I look at it that my time at GW, I really grew up. I really felt I grew up as an educator, as a student there, which is very different than when I went back as a, as a faculty, but as a student there, I was really inspired by Lisa Alexander, her engagement in the profession, all the work she did in the community, Jim Colley and his, how committed he was to the profession and scholarly activities and research and public health. Susan Dumpy was another one of the faculty there, and, and, and they just pushed for engagement and community and getting involved with AAPA and SAPO at the time. And so I think that's where my professional advocacy comes from, just being in that environment with those, I mean, you know, phenomenal leaders. Um, and so then when I got to the program as faculty in 2001, Susan Lella Shore was the academic director there, and, and she welcomed me with arms. I should say, and I can actually back up a little bit, when I went on as faculty to help start the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, I reached out to my GW colleagues, friends, my faculty, and said, I'm going to be start helping start a program. We're starting from nothing. Is there anything? Can you all help me out? Give me some guidance. I've never even written an objective in my life. Like, I don't know anything about that. Sure. And, Jim, and Jim Colley and Susan uh, Lalashore said, pick a day, any day, 
come come back to campus. We will open up our vault to you. Whatever you want, whatever you need, whatever we can do to support you, Jackie, you got it. And I mean, that was just so heartwarming, um, you know, to me um, as well. So when I got back on, fa you know, faculty, Susan Lalashore was there. That's like Jeff Heinrich. So still really good guidance. Susan and I, we became very much like sisters. We fought like sisters all the time as well, too. But um, yeah, so that 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 was there. So I was there for 15 years, did all kinds of wonderful things, community stuff, really getting evidence-based medicine going there, really um, uh, increasing access to care for those in those rural communities. At, they had housing places, putting these students who've never really been in some of these communities, you know, you know, out there and just really continue to spread our wings as it related to diversity and healthcare access and understanding social determinants of health. Been there, like I said, 15 years and then uh, recognized the call for Duke uh, as an associate program director. At the time, GW, several years before, had sort of lost its uh, family medicine or family medicine residence. So we were coming a little bit less primary care for me and a little bit more specialty. We're seeing more of our students going into specialty practice and way less primary care. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of some of the mission that which drove me there was changing a little bit. And so with Duke, who I, again, for me, had this strong mission of primary care, underserved communities. I, I never thought that I would ever leave GW, to be quite honest. Um, and I still love that. I still love GW. I still consider it uh, the place I, I grew up. But I said, okay, it's a chance to, to think about it. If the opportunity comes, you know, let me see or talk with Howard about it. He's like, absolutely. So I ended up here as the associate program director, really continued to push forward that mission, a lot more alignment of our, I took over admissions when I came. That was one of my two big jobs with admission and student services. And so did all kinds of things to really better align our uh, admissions to our mission. Mm -hmm that we're you know, still working on to really increase the accessibility of others to, to the Duke Peer Program and an education at Duke and, and still doing that with all the things that the, the program has just historically done with community service and rural populations and underserved communities. Um, and, that's, and that's still the fight that we're fighting. It's still what we're doing. You know, I've continued to push, I think the institution, I like to believe that of, of getting um, us more, what's the word? And, you, and I'm sure you have the same experience being in an academic medical center as a PA program at USC of getting more visibility yeah. across the institution. Like I would say to uh, our dean, whenever there's something going on in the med school that involved the, in, that may involve the PA program in any kind of way, I need to make sure that there's a PA at the table, either me or someone else. Like we need to be a part of some of these conversations. And I think the program has really looked at, I think the program has always been without question the flagship in the medical school. I think it's looked at even more of, of leading areas mm -hmm. in the medical school. So some of the areas around diversity and, and that uh, they, you know, the Dean called me and says, can I come talk to you and your students, figure out what it is that you all are doing right there. Um, because when we got complaints uh, a year and a half ago after the George Floyd's death, we had the DPT students wrote a scathing letter. The medical students wrote a scathing letter to the dean and, and, and all about their experiences. We didn't. She says, I didn't get any letters from the PA students. What, what is it that you all are doing there that has made their experience so much different and better? I don't think we get enough credit as a profession from the medical community. And, and you know, I, I mean, I love my, my medical school colleagues. They're phenomenal at USC. Um, so this isn't a statement about SC. And it's been my observation over the years that we fly under the radar as a profession, yet we're often ahead of the curve in many areas. And uh, that's not an unusual story to hear where suddenly somebody from the medical school says, you know, the PA program has been doing this for a couple of years. Let's go see what, what this is about. And yes, we certainly have learned a lot from them, too, but I'm not surprised to hear that, uh, especially at Duke. I think that we are a very humble profession. I think that is good. And sometimes it doesn't serve us best. And I think in some of these big spaces and these large academic medical centers that we really do need to toot our horn a lot more. We really need to show our value as an educational program in these in institutions, not show our value. 
I think we need to toot our horn to make sure that others recognize our value. Sometimes it may be, maybe, maybe they do, and it's it, it doesn't appear to be sometimes, but I, I think some of that is that we don't like we'll get awards, PAEA awards or publications, and they, they don't know about it. You know, they don't right, know right. some of the stuff that we're doing, all the, the work we're doing in terms of innovating our courses and incorporating technology and, 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 and all our different learning techniques. They don't know that we're doing all this stuff and we're, you know, we're doing it. We kind of just keep it hidden. Um, and I think that's where we need to be able to toot our horn and no, no, grand rounds. Hey, please put put the PA program down to, to speak at grand rounds as well. You know, so I get all the invitations now. We're looking for a grand round speaker. You and anybody in the program, you know, any other PAs that really want to highlight their work. So, so I think it's all, you know, coming, you know, to fruition. And, and we continue to do even more of that as all PA programs. I'm not just speaking about Duke, but all PA programs. I think we really need to continue to highlight and toot our horns a little bit more. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about Duke a little bit. Tell us about Duke University's PA program in terms of what are you looking for in applicants? What are what is your kind of quintessential applicant to the program that you're hoping is excited about joining you? So our quintessential applicant is really someone that is truly aligned with our mission um, and core values as it relates to extending care to rural and underserved areas, our values of diversity, equity, inclusion, academic excellence, and, and, and serving, and the aspect of research that really helps to continue to promote students, faculty, staff, the pro, you know, the profession, you know, as well. But, but, but more that academic excellence um, and commitment of serving. You know, I think that's the biggest thing, the commitment of serving, to know that if you come here, one of the things that we're going to be asking you to do is to serve, you know, to serve the Durham community that has allowed us to occupy this space, to serve other communities, to serve professionally, whether it's as a student SAPA, the North Carolina Academy, or in some of the, you know, local nonprofits, leadership, you know, positions. So I think that would be it. We actually... I don't know if like is the appropriate word, but we have a lot of respect for students that demonstrate grit. You know, that's a word I use a lot that have gone through a few things and to show that they can bounce back from a gut check every now and then. Who've had to struggle, who maybe had to work and go to school at the same time, or who's raising a single a single mom or dad raising two kids, and maybe they don't have a four zero or three five, but they and they have a a two nine, but they've been working and showing grit and supporting a family because we really think that it takes one a lot of grit to get through this program on anybody's part and and to be able to take that back to communities to help others you know get over gets through you know some of the challenges that life throws us so we really like looking at and accepting applicants that that can demonstrate a little grit. And then in terms of uh, service, tell us if you have a, an angle, if you will, do you like people that have served in a multitude of different places, getting 20 or 30 check boxes where they've been part of a variety of communities? Do you prefer somebody that has dedicated their time and energy into one institution and try to make a difference with one? Or are you kind of agnostic about that? Probably not too hard and fast on that, but I think we, we prefer the continuity. Like, you know, an individual that said, you know, this is going to be the community or population or organization that I'm serving for, you know, for whatever the reason. And to put, you know, to have a little skin in the game, you know, Kevin, I like skin in the game. I like it to really, that you really take hold and take ownership of something and do it to the best of your uh, ability. So I think for us that that works and, and something where you, you have to make some sacrifices to serve. You know, that you really have to make some sacrifices, not that, oh, I'm serving as a checkbox because I want to go into a PA program and they want me to serve. But that, you know, for you to go serve this place may mean that, I don't know, you have to your your days are going to be long, that you may have a 12 or 13 hour day, three to four days a week or, 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 or something like that. Or that it might even cost you to serve, you know, for you to serve means that, I don't know. That, uh, you have to take a trip out of town every now and then. I don't know, but something that really shows that you got a little skin in the game, that it means enough 
to you that you're willing to make sacrifices because for us, as a student in the program, we're wanting them to know that this program means enough to them that they are going to have to sacrifice. They're going to have to sacrifice their time away from their family to study, whatever. They may have to sacrifice time on the weekend to do some service things, but they're going to have to make some sacrifices, you know, as a student in this, in this program and to understand sort of what that sacrifice means because many of our patients have to make these kinds of sacrifices every, you know, every day. Um, so we, we, I think we're, we're pretty, I think that's one area where we really feel good about. Um, and, and, and thank goodness, many of our students come with that servant leadership mentality. So it's not something that we're having to drill and say, oh, no, you will serve here. They come saying, hey, you know, I have 12 places that I'm already serving. Can I make those a part of the program? Or when can we start serving? Do we have to wait until... PA week and, the, and the, the day of service, we have a day of service that usually kicks off PA week. Can we start serving before PA week? So luckily we really attract the students that we think best carry out the mission of the Duke PA program, you know, and the institution and the PA profession, I man, the PA profession. Yeah. So as an applicant, probably one of the best things they could do is take a look at that mission, take a look at the values of your institution really try to figure out how they align with that and, and illustrate that in their application. Yeah, absolutely. And we really want them to demonstrate it. Like, you know, applicants or application that say, you know, I'm really interested in primary care and service, but when we look through their application, they've done no service and all of their work has been in CT surgery. That's not demonstrating that mission to us. <laughs> yeah, I have this, I have a smile because I've been reading a bunch of applications this last week and Absolutely. Right. We're a primary care program, too. And, and so doing all of your experiences in CT is is wonderful. But there's some really good schools that focus on surgery. We're just not one of them. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank and we'll get into sometimes within our faculty. Oh, but they 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 you know, they are from a rural or underserved community or they're this. I said, but they have to demonstrate it in other other ways or they say, oh, but. You know, it is a Latino applicant, Jackie, or it's a Black applicant. And I said, yes, but just being a Latino applicant or a Black applicant doesn't get you into the program. It's what you've done with that that really helped to, again, extend primary care and some of those other things. And how have you helped others? And so we're, we're pretty passionate about demonstrating who you are and what you have done that really aligns with our mission. Because our hope is that you will take that and when you leave us, you will go back to some of these communities and continue to be that extender of the Duke PA program and that, you know, that mission, those tentacles that we really value. Yeah. And I'll say over the years, I've run into your graduates out in the Southwest in a variety of capacities. And that has been my experience that they continue to, they're all very similar in that way, which I think is the testament to the consistency of your program and, and what you do. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, the George Floyd murders, the anti-racism uh, movement that is afoot in the United States, and kind of your own experiences. You've been a leader in DEI for your entire career, and uh, and so I, I would imagine that you have some thoughts on how that has impacted the school, uh, the profession, and where we're heading with that, if, if you don't mind sharing your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I think the past uh, 18 plus months, 20 months now that we're in it, I think have without a doubt been some of the most challenging in my professional career as a PA. I think it was the George Floyd murders and this racial reckoning that was happening on top of COVID and on top of a never ending election year that really just was a tripartite of a perfect storm in my, my way. I think that, and I'm going to call it racial reckoning. Sometimes people don't like when I say that, but the racial reckoning that um, happened because of that, I, I think sent a whirlwind through so many academic institutions across the continent of the United States and Duke was no different. Duke has a history that they should not be proud of when it comes to race and race relations and discrimination. And that, um, movement and the letters that I spoke of beforehand from the DP students and the med students, I think struck a core. I think it hit this institution at the core of what people were seeing, even in this day and age. And the changes 
that the dean of the medical school all the way up to the president have promised, instituted, and put in effect, I mean, right away have been short of phenomenal. Like I would have never guessed it. I was a, a part of a, a group of us and ended up being six primary writers, but you know, more who signed and created this black faculty letter called cost letter that addressed the, the experience of many of the black faculty here at this medical school. And we only make up about 4%. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the only black program director in the entire in university. And I'm of course the first one at the Duke PA program. I think that the institutional leaders started to viscerally feel the experiences that many have had in this institution and basically said, this is going to start changing today. So for us at the program level, we've already, like you said, a little bit of a head. We had, you know, students made videos. We did a, a, a town hall. I mean, maybe two days after this, I was discouraged from some of these student videos. I was discouraged by some for, you know, some of the things that we put up on our, our website as related to Black Lives Matter and our, the student pledge for an anti-racist program and the institution within the past, oh, I don't know, six or seven months. Have, uh, I mean, they've gone really strong with every faculty staff has Black Lives Matter pendants for lab coats across the institution. They sent out letters to every patient that talked about Black Lives Matter, made videos. So when patients or anyone else says things like, well, all lives matter, how to respond to that. We uh, created a, a moments movement where we had uh, four committees to really look across the institution and faculty, staff, student experiences and make recommendations to the dean. One of the recommendations that came out of that was that we needed a vice dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion at that top level that would work with the programs uh, and institutes and all better. And we are in the process of hiring that. I served on that search committee. We've just done so many things that are actionable, things that are really, really actionable um, and putting money to it. I think, I, I think, don't quote me on this, I think there was a $16 million donation or whatever that they're using to support some of these efforts. Um, so, yeah, so from the institutional point, I think that they've done everything. I, I don't think I could have asked for a better response. We had a, a, a campus march with, with our leaders, our chancellor, our dean right out in front as it related to, you know, sort of the white coat for black lives yeah. um, across campus that our students participated in, faculty and staff. And we've had several sessions with everyone I'm very, very proud of the way that Duke, as one of the institutions that I think has had a really sad and, and racist history and how they responded to this call. And I'm very proud of the program faculty, staff, and students who are always a little bit ahead over the past couple of years, but who really have continued to, you know, to push me as the program director, especially the students, to continue to push uh, me as the program director. And I don't need a lot of pushing, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> and they're good at pushing, that's for sure. Yeah. Push me as the program, you know, so I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way that we have had, but on the flip side to say that it was, it has been very challenging. And when I participate, especially in some of those early PAEA town halls with students, faculty, it was just disheartening. It was yeah. just disheartening. And I and Howard, we received, oh, I can tell you no less than 15 to 20 calls each week from different students or uh, faculty at programs and what they were experiencing at those programs as being uh, faculty of color or student of color. It was disheartening. And I, I remember saying, I think I, even at that time, I was saying, this feels more like before Brown versus Board of Education with some of these folks who are experiencing in these PA programs, often at the hands of other PAs. Yeah. You know, um, I just, I, I, you know, it was, I mean, it was, it was just tear jerking. It's unconscionable. Yeah, it, it is. is. So as, as an educator, then, I think we probably should talk about this, this concept of our tool belt that we carry as PAs. You know, we think about the different things that we need to teach our students to equip them to be able to effectively practice medicine when they leave as part of a team. And to me, anti-racism and how to become a white ally and some of those things really should be part of that toolkit. I mean, we've always 
accreditation's often asked us from a public health perspective to talk about social determinants of health and, and health disparities. But I don't, I don't know how you feel, but from my perspective, I don't think we've ever had it to be at this level where we can make a real significant difference in the health workforce with what students are encountering while they're in our program. So what is Duke doing to, to kind of move the needle, so to speak, uh, in a positive way? Oh, yeah. So thank you for that question. And gosh, whew, I'm happy to answer that question. So I can tell you, as, as one of the things I mentioned to you was around admissions. So that was one of the things that we really aligned with our mission and really tried to make our admissions process more of an anti-racism process. Because I would hate to sit in some of these admissions meetings and, and the bias that was coming out around whether the student was a good fit or if they were too old or they were a single parent, were they, the, you know, the, the, the pedigree, the institutions they attended, you know, would, would they be good here at Duke? you know, their vernacular, you know, and all of this. And so we have designed and addressed these things head on in committees. You know, we don't want to hear that. We uh, sort of revise some of our, our rubrics and really do bias training for those participating in our admissions process. I just recently finished a faculty search process where a lot of the charge that I gave to the committee and I potentially put the committee together in terms of who we chose. And a lot of that charge was about how are you going to make this an anti-racism search committee that mitigates bias? How will the committee call it in and call it out amongst each other? How can we make our rubrics to be more objective and align them to the mission of the program? You know, basically the whole process. And I met with that search committee chair pretty much weekly, reviewed rubrics, um, and we just did the presentation for the med school at large about this process that we think can be a best process. We have a course, a PHS course, that we have uh, realigned across the entire curriculum that addresses all of those areas, anti-racism, white privilege, supremacy, social determinants health, what it means to be an anti-racist. It, it was the highest rated program, I do believe, in the curriculum last year. I mean, just students were just punching onto this. We look back at all of our curriculum, especially cases. Um, you know, some of the cases that we use for teaching hypertension, diabetes, and looked at, oh my God, look at the bias in these cases. Take, let's take race out of that 35-year-old black male. So we've removed the race. A lot of the stereotypes as it related to those cases, we're looking at our assessment methodologies, our test items, and looking for where the bias exists in these test items. So I have my director of assessment and evaluation and I created a senior education strategist position about two years ago, really looking at, you know, at those and we are actively talking about it. During admissions, we have a diversity groups, our students, and that's what they call themselves. And so we have the applicants meet with our students to talk about diversity program, anti-racism. So I believe we are touching it in almost every area that I can think of that really has potentially kept some folks out of Duke, either as a student or as a faculty, or as a staff and or who has made the learning environment um, sort of traumatizing for other students that we may not have recognized because of wording and stereotypes and bias in our curriculum or things that people say or do. And we're really looking at finding a better way to address it, call it out in real time and provide more bystanding and support training to those. And lastly, I forgot to say, we actually have what they call a dear group, which is what two of the two of the white faculty that meet weekly with the rest of the white faculty to talk about how to be better allies, really helping them understand what race and racism and privilege looks like. And, you know, Robin D'Angelo's work and Ibram work and books and all that. And they've probably been meeting weekly, I would say at least a year, at least a year now to really address so when something comes up during the course of a week that might've been biased that happened, they're addressing it in that group. You know, look, want to let you know that you did this and, and it has come above and how we can support you to recognize that, no, that really is marginalization. You know, that really is 
so on and so forth. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I, I, I was reminded recently in a really amazing conversation with a group of our students how impactful even just the images on the slides can be. And, and because of systemic racism and bias, so many of the medical images that we use in our lectures are of, of people with white skin. And so to be more inclusive in our presentations in terms of how we demonstrate how this could look in another population, in another community versus just always showing people with you know skin lesions on white skin. And you know, the, the other thing that I came out of that meeting with is just truly how, how we continue as faculty to traumatize our students who have already had a journey of pain from racism in, in their experiences growing up. And then to come to an institution where we're hoping to try to be inspiring them to take great care of patients and be a leader in the community, only then to further traumatize them just really hurts. So we still have a long way to go. Yeah. And with that, Kevin, one of the things that I constantly am saying, so you traumatize a student at eight o'clock this morning, made them feel really bad about themselves. And then they had to sit down at 8.30 and take a neurology exam and they don't do well on the exam. And the first thing people want to say is, oh, well, that student, maybe they just aren't of Duke pedigree. You know, no, that student is carrying the weight of this trauma into an exam that the other students have not had to do. And that and or that same student is sitting in a class where she's seeing he or she's seeing all the patients with syphilis. They see brown skin, but the patient with poison ivy, they see white skin. You know, right. and the message that that sends to the point that I can tell you when I was working in ID, I had a student. And I had a patient that had syphilis and the student said, that can't be syphilis. And I said, why not? Because white people don't have syphilis. All the pictures and all that we saw, it was of black people or brown skin. So I thought that, you know, yeah. it was rare if ever that that would be. So he was questioning, I'm the provider. I'm seeing eight, nine syphilis patients today. He yeah. was questioning me on my diagnosis that this was syphilis because it was a white person. And maybe because I was a brown provider too, that he just didn't, didn't I mean, it, it ended up being a, a very uncomfortable situation because he truly yeah. did not believe that that person had syphilis. That was only something that black folks got. Yeah, I mean, it's, like I said, we have a long way to go. So, so, so let me ask, uh, you've been at Duke, how long as director? I've been, so I've been at Duke since 2056. I've been at Duke six years this month. I took over as program director in 2018. Half years, I guess now. Yeah. All right. So let, let's do a, a future visioning exercise. On the day that you're leaving Duke, when you finally decide to hang up your stethoscope and move into another journey of yours, whatever that be, what are you hoping that your legacy or your impact will be? What, what is the kind of the story you would hope to hear of the change at Duke from your transformational leadership that you have been known to provide? I think that one, that every person who is in the program, whether student, faculty, or staff, feel that their presence and their voice is valued. I think that, that the program as a whole, that we're no longer having conversations about race and inclusion, that that is as far behind us as polio or something, right? Um, yeah. You know, that it's, it's something that there's never a need to talk about because it it really doesn't exist. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't feel that existence. That across the medical center, that we are seeing more PAs in prominent decision-making positions within the health system as clinical department chairs or vice chairs or leads, and across the educational programs as deans or division chiefs or so on and so forth. I think that, that when people think of primary care training and a service to underserved communities that they think of Duke, especially on this side of town, maybe on your side of town, they'll think of USC, <laughs> but on this side of town, I want them to think of Duke. I think that would, you know, that would be it. And I think that we have a, and, and I think that our program overall that our curriculum, and I can say this probably for all PA programs working with us, because is that the intensity of this curriculum is not so stressful. 
to students, faculty, and staff that we find a better way to deliver PA education than the way that it has been delivered over the past 40 to 50 years, and definitely since I've been a PA, so nearly 30 years, that we find a better way to do this and, and hoping that we're able to use some of the things that we were forced to do with COVID over the past year and a half to sort of help us debulk and de-intensify the curriculum without losing some of the excellence that's in our curriculums. Because I definitely think there's a different and a better way to do it than what some of us are doing. And that's some of the stuff that I'm working on right now at, you know, within our program. I agree. I think one of the challenges of our diversity in our profession could be the the model of education that we provide. It's very, for the most part, the dynamic of it is very singular across all programs. It's a gut check for 24, 26, 28 months, 33 months in some programs. And it's just nonstop. You know, the classic we thing we hear in PA education is drinking from the fire hose. And I think that really scares some people away. And it the lack of flexibility, if you look at the NP profession, they have a, a much more flexible curriculum than we have. And if you look at the outcomes, it doesn't seem to make a significant difference. And so maybe we need to be thinking out of the box. Jackie, thank you so much for your time. It's been such an honor to have you and, and to also represent Duke during PA week. Uh, this obviously will be out in about a month, but the chance to just talk to you about your profession and your history as a PA uh, was really a privilege and I do appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you, um, Kevin. Thank you for your work. Uh, we look at USC as our partners in this business. We have very, very similar missions. I really appreciate your leadership and work and even doing these podcasts, you know, to, to highlight so many of the programs in Duke. Yes, PA Week this week, we say happy birthday to Dr. Stead. Um, you know, again, as we celebrate, and I think just to celebrate all the work of PAs and all the work of PA educators, you know, across this country doing this week. And let's continue to elevate this our programs and elevate our profession and let all know what PAs can be. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's truly, truly an honor. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Jackie Barnett, for her time and talents today. It was truly an honor to speak with her about her path to becoming a PA and about the work she has done to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion to the forefront of each program she has been a part of. Her clinical work in the coroner's office was a nice surprise and highlights a different role that PAs can and do play in some parts of the country, while her vision for the founding program of our profession moving forward provided a glimpse of what Duke is all about. Join us next week as we speak with Dr. Patrick Knott and Mr. Jason Radke from the Rosalind Franklin University PA program. We talk about the commitment from their institution to inclusion, including the name change to honor Dr. Rosalind Franklin and her contributions to science. We also talk about their Chicago area program and about the benefits of postgraduate training programs, which Dr. Knott has been a part of for many years. Finally, we discuss Dr. Knott's current path as an academic leader and as an inventor and scholar. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.